Podcast, what's up? Super fired up. Uh, gonna be in Texas, El Paso. When am I gonna be in El Paso? February 5th. February 5th, I will be in Texas, El Paso. El Paso, Texas. Uh, if, so if you're in the area or have friends. And then I will be in Dubai on March 11th, I believe. That is correct. Uh, and to find out the rest of the places I'm gonna be that are locked in, go to garyvee.com slash events. And now sit back and listen to the greatest podcast in the history of mankind. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. What's up, everybody? Today we have a live podcast that Gary did with Matt Dubiel, the owner of the WCKG station. They talk about business, marketing, media, and a little football. I hope you enjoy. We're, we're the same age, even though you look so much younger. Um, we grew up in that era of radio being part of your life. You grew up in Jersey. I'm just wondering kind of start things off, what, if any, was the radio station that was like the soundtrack of your life growing up in Jersey? I mean, I listened to WFAF every single day. Okay, so, but that was like early 90s. Sports radio was becoming a thing. It wasn't even really a thing. It was a thing here because Mike and Mad Dog were the pioneers of it. So, for me, you know, if, if you're talking about very early 80s, it was whenever my mom put on a pop yeah. radio. But by the time I got into, you know, 14, 15, or maybe I had a little more say in the car and what went on, and then obviously when I started driving, it was 98% you know, and, um, and so sports radio was a huge, I mean, so many of, the single worst day of my Jets fandom, when the Jets hired Rich Kotite, who I thought was a bum coach from the Eagles, which meant that we were now going to face more bad years, happened on the highway and breaking news on the fan. Uh, so it was, for me, it was very heavily sports radio 660 AM. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me watching the way that you operate from a media standpoint. Um, I, I have a lot of conversations with radio people and I say, look at the internet. You see a, a guy or a girl talking with a camera in front of them and they're talking into a radio microphone. They're all doing radio shows. So what you do seems to be almost influenced by that. I mean, where, do you think that that was um, what shaped the way that you use media and the one library and those sorts of things? Yeah, I, I definitely think that talk radio, um, because even now thinking back to with my dad, you know, whether it was IMS or other personalities, I would hear talk radio. And then, you know, I think I'm a little bit more impacted by Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, and really wrestling promo videos. Like, I think I'm wildly affected in the way that I communicate. I can sometimes see I'm doing a wrestling promo. Uh, so, yeah, I would say Mad Dog, who was a little bit more of the wild one in that combo, like a Mad Dog, you know, stand up comedy and, and wrestling promo are probably the subtle, subconscious influences on how I present. And uh, on the wrestling front, Macho Man Randy Savage. Of course. We're both from the same hometown. Macho Man and I went to the same high school. Is that right? Did you know that he was an all-star baseball player? He played minor league baseball. Yes. And he also burnt down the dugout, which is why he had a transition to the <laughs> So he had a transition to wrestling. But those guys are the, and girls, although back then it was mostly guys, almost all guys in wrestling, were ultimate self-promoters uh, on camera with their, what do you call that, their cuttings or whatever before yeah. the camera match. Um, other sports weren't doing that uh, so much. In fact, I remember, and you probably remember, especially if you're listening to sports radio in the 90s and paying attention, 
uh, in the 90s, it was the decade of the Cowboys for a while there, he had Emmett Smith. I remember reading a story about Emmett Smith's agent telling him, take your helmet off when you get into the end zone, which today I don't think you can do. Right. Take your helmet off so they know, they see your face, so that we can put you on the cover of Wheaties or whatever, otherwise these people don't know who you are. It's still the biggest reason that football players wear chains and both with numbers on it, because nobody really knows who they are. So, going from Emmett Smith, and I think this pertains to athletes, to business people, to social media influencers. But I think, but I think real quick before we go there, because I think it's an important nuance. In that same era, sure there's Emmett Smith, but Michael Urban on his same team was profiling. Deion Sanders was completely out of control, yeah. and on the sidelines doing too legit to quit, you know, dynamics. So there's always been, you know, Brett Favre did take his helmet off in that Super Bowl. Like I do think that it's always been a personality trait. I mean, Muhammad Ali was far from shy. With, you know, and I, I think that people that understood the media landscape and were comfortable with the judgment of others about their self-promotion, Billy White Shoes Johnson, a little bit before our times, did ridiculous end zone dances, and I can name him as a fringe mid-tier wide receiver. So I, I would argue that it was there more than people realize. It was maybe not as at scale, it was definitely not as accepted, because yeah. we came back, you know, America was very affected by two world wars in a very short period of time, including the Korean War and then the Vietnam War. The culture was more structured, more you follow me, youngster, and, and you saw little pockets of people breaking out. And by the way, when those people broke out, they dealt with deep ramifications, huge suppression, whether that was jail or public ridicule, yet we sit here today, 30, 40 years later, and that's what we talk about, not the people that come forward. So, there were also gatekeepers, though. Correct. And the gatekeepers were there, whether it was a Howard Cosell or whoever, to make sure that things didn't get on the air if they weren't Correct. appropriate. And sometimes you thought it was for the network, but it was also for that athlete or whomever. Today, athletes, uh, executives, people that work in retail are thrust into this world where they have direct and immediate access to thousands of people. Look at uh, what's the guy, the receiver from the, the Patriots, Antonio uh, Brown. So when is it? I hear people in sports radio saying, well, Antonio Brown, if, if they bring him back, they got to say no social media for you. Yeah, I, I think that that's just wildly uh, naive. It's not about the social media. It's not about taking things away from people or kids. It's about fixing the well, not the sick. Taking the phone away from Antonio Brown is not addressing the issue. Yeah, it's true. It's, and, and I think that, you know, and by the way, I think Antonio Brown speaks a lot of truths that most people in the trillion dollar business of American football don't want to be talked about because it can lead to loss of revenue. And so, uh, you know, I think there's extremes to everything. There's always, Lanes, but I, I don't think it's, I think it's laughable that people demonize the distribution product, not the content that's being put out. Point taken, and I think that that's something that uh, everybody should really think about because it, you know maybe that guy in particular needs therapy or whatever it is that's going to lead to him being better. So 
but let's ask the question then, who should be, you know, what about the, um, the secretary at the kid's school that posts that she likes X and then loses her job? What about the girl that works at the zoo and she posts something that's happened in Chicago, she loses her job, or a stand-up comedian or well, somebody? When, when somebody has power over you, you have to weigh the options of what you're going to say. If, if you're employed by somebody, you are at the mercy of her or his judgment of your behavior. So what advice would you give then? Because there's most more people are at, in that position. The far majority of the world. Than everybody else who's not. So what should they know about social media that they're not really getting at? That the far majority of the way that you're framing it up is about defense. And the reality of the situation is it's enormous for an offense. So in the scenarios that we're talking about, instead of not posting and living your life, try to work very hard on the side to find another job where the judge and the jury is far more progressive and open than the one that you currently work for. And if you can't, then quantify that reality. And if you have this insatiable need to communicate on the internet, create a broader account, and if not, then deal with the ramifications and don't talk. However, recognize that there are enormous options. People are stunningly not capable of realizing they can get another job somewhere else. People play defense. And I think that's why, you know, this is an important conversation because people spend all their time on what can go wrong instead of realizing what can go right. There are far more examples of people that have created happiness, love, and success on the internet than people that have lost. Yet we focus, it's wrong on that game. Nobody pays attention when you're driving to all the cars that are going nicely and everyone's on their way. It's we focus on the car accident. People are scared to fly because of the occasional news cycle of a plane crash, and yet it is safer to fly than walk across the street. People are scared of sharks, yet hippos kill more people in a day than sharks do in a year. But we love hippos because we play hungry, hungry hippos. People, people are not paying attention. There's so much more good that is happening. It's not even close. We're just unbelievably capable of focusing on that. You started out obviously in business and entrepreneurial and those things, but as far as social media goes, you had early success in the early days of YouTube. Yes. What was, that could have, you could have taken that in a bunch of different directions. Yeah. I don't know that you could have been PewDiePie, but you could have been your version of PewDiePie, right? Yeah. What was the aha moment for you that had you go like, this is where I need to go with this for me? Pre and decided to jump in and do one every TV or post when all the opportunities came where I went with it. B. Uh, I'm a businessman that just happens to have a personality trait that makes people interested in him. But in his soul, I'm an operator and businessman. And the thought of becoming a personality full time is foreign and not exciting. Even though you are. As a collateral of how I figured out how to create because I documented my journey, but that's right. Yeah. That's right. Gary V is, is a byproduct, is a 
is a side hustle and, at, and strategically is a top of the funnel branding mechanism to create business opportunities. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur business operator uh, who moonlights as a TikTok influencer. <laughs> Podcast, what's good? Uh, Want to make sure you're signed up for the weekly newsletter. We revamped it. Uh, uh, a couple weeks ago and the response has been overwhelming. Um, in the history of the newsletter, maybe seven or eight years, I think we've had two or three significant changes but there's been nothing like this. The recap nature, uh, the fact that it only comes out once a week, we, we visually loaded it up in a UI UX that makes it easily to consume while having a ton of information. There may be no better way to keep up with opportunities uh, and information that you're probably looking for than signing up for the newsletter. Go to GaryVaynerchuk.com, uh, my website GaryVaynerchuk.com and sign up for the email newsletter. It's at the top or the side or you'll find it. It's, it's there. Uh, sign up for the uh, Weekly V uh, newsletter and, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. And now to the podcast. So, and, and to be clear, as I understand it, you started an agency. Yes. So for anybody who has ever sold advertising in any media form, I can't speak outside the country, but in the United States, people that sell advertising don't want to sell advertising. It's tough. It's the business has changed. It's one of the things that has made me great early. <laughs> Because I have to focus on that side of our business versus, so you said, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, the least fun part of it. And you did that so that, if I'm getting this right, you did that so that in the future, when the economy collapses, you can buy brands at a discount and now have an agency that can push those brands out better than anybody else. Is that correct? Accurate? That's right. Biff Tannen came in the door and said, Kid, listen, here's how you Where did that, where the hell did that come from in what? Like, 07? Yeah, I think it came from a million different things. Uh, one, that was around the time that I decided for myself that I was a marketer, not a retailer. For myself, I decided that. I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I'm not a retailer. Maybe I'm, or a salesman, maybe I'm a marketer. That's how I built my mind rate. It was the marketing, because when YouTube sold to Google for $1.7 billion, that was a huge moment for me. I was like, wait a minute. I've been right for too long now. E-commerce, email, search, and now this YouTube thing. Like, okay, I need to take a step back and rethink. And that's when I started investing, and that's when I started thinking myself a little bit different. Ironically, I haven't shared this a lot. I've gone through a very similar uh, moment in the last six months where I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a storyteller, not a marketer, and had a very similar thing happen randomly in the last six months, which now leads me to believe that I'm gonna have a substantial career in movies and film at some point, because I think I understand it. In the same way that I came into Madison Avenue, I think there's a substantial, if I'm predicting, knowing myself, I think there's a substantial opportunity for me in Hollywood, and I think I will do that. And so, um, you know, I thought about like, what am I great at? What, what ended up happening was, I started it because, in 09, because of opportunity. It was coming at me, I'm a good counterpuncher. By 2011, it was very clear to me, because I'd become educated about investing, things of that nature, there was something called private equity, and these people would buy companies, and they would cut costs, 
by you know firing all the employees and bringing in better employees and look at other things with printing on expensive paper. Why does everybody fly first class? They play defense and make the business more efficient, which I appreciate. I understand. For me, I was like, wait a minute. I think I can do the reverse of that. What I'm good at is taking a business, and I've done it twice now, from either zero or a small base, and hyper growth in a short period of time, being deeply consumer centric and wildly contemporary in my behavior. What if I built a scaled machine of that? I also, at that point in my life, in 11, was starting to think about things like bigger things like my brother has Crohn's disease, not like that. What if, you know, that was also, you know, a lot of the tech world was very involved in the Obama campaign. I'm like, hey, what if I want one of my friends to be the president or governor? I can help. I know what they're doing. Like, I understand that. So I, I started having headier dreams and ambitions, which led to, I need to build a machine to scale me. You know, why are, why is... President Obama, why is Mark Zuckerberg, why is Travis, why is Saka, why are all these fancy people interested in spending time with me? I took a step back and I was like, okay, I have something. What is so much more unique than anybody else that these people that are winning have come across that is attracting them to me? It was a very self-awareness, self-reflecting moment. And I decided, and now I genuinely believe it, that I might be one of the great communicators of all time let me go scale around that. And that's why the agency exists. And witnessing that a lot of people don't know what they're doing. Right? Yes. Yeah, so that, that, that was 09 to 11. Like, I just couldn't believe yeah. from May of 09 when we started being in the media to September 2011 when I decided to go full throttle that here we were two years and four months later and yet nobody was still involved in social media in a meaningful way. And that's when I decided to be completely crazy and go all And so on the note of this collapse idea, which is not, I mean, other people have think that that's coming. I don't know that other people have that sort of plan. It may be happening in slow motion already. I don't, uh, well, it's happening because nothing is practical anymore. It's already happened, meaning 99% of kids at 23 years old think that their idea is worth $8 million. So that's a problem. So, uh, and I also think that this public markets, Wall Street, are, are fundamentally reacting to the president's behavior, which I think is mortgaging the future at all costs for the short-term success, no different than maximizing credit cards to look like you're winning, but then you gotta eventually pay it. Unlike a human, presidents have a luxury of leaving after four or eight years and leaving somebody else with a bag. I think Wall Street is so inflated, anticipating a re-election, that if he's, um, if he's not re-elected, I think the economy will collapse. Okay, wow. Um, so, you think that if, if this president is not re-elected, the economy will collapse because yes. of all the, the stock they've put into why? Because Wall Street understands that President Trump will mortgage and collect a huge deficit to create short-term dynamics of a seemingly strong economy, which is fine. I mean, that, that's not a political statement. That's a practical operational financial statement. Uh, and so that's what they're betting on. And I think there's, you know, anticipation for re-election because the Democratic field is not clear to anybody. And, and, and the rallies are enormously big and people run quantum. I think that the inflation of stock right now is predicated on re-election, which again, 
is what it is from a financial business standpoint. And so if it is not a re-election, I think you would see a massive correction. Not to mention that the Democrat that would come into place would put in policies that I think would be more anti-business, big business, and some of the corrections of the aggressive regulation releases during this administration. And I think that's cool. I mean, it's fine. Like, to me, I'm not emotional about it from a business standpoint, from left to right. Socially, I get quite emotional. But from a business standpoint, it is what it is, and you react to what it is. I think people are pot committed to the extreme and maximizing short term, which I think would lead to a correction if it happens. So you mentioned kids, people getting overinflated values, thinking something of theirs might be worth $8 million or wherever it is. I think some of that comes from what they see firsthand in big companies. Some examples that come to mind, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Spotify paid like $340 million by Gimlet and Anchor. Uh, iHeartRadio spent, I don't know, I think it was around $10 million, but that could be off to get the Ron Burgundy podcast, for example. Did iHeart just let go of a thousand employees? So, yeah, so they just, so they just can, maybe more. They're not saying they have 12,500 employees around. iHeart, for people that aren't from the United States, is, is the largest owner, uh, operator of radio stations in the United States of America. And so they've missed the boat. And, and they haven't prepared for the future like you're talking about. And they represent and help. You know, obviously they deal with agencies, but they deal with direct advertisers. So what about those inflated values? Are those companies just begging for uh, new products? In fact, I heard just came out of bankruptcy also. So coming out of bankruptcy and then they're spending that kind of money on garbage. I mean, whether you like our burgundy or not, eight episodes of a podcast probably aren't worth, you know, that kind of money. I think what they did there, because I've been analyzing, I, I think they're, they've gone very heavy into podcasting, which I think is right. And I think what they thought they had, I think, I have no idea, is that if we make a big play with somebody's biggest Will Ferrell, that we can use that top of the funnel to acquire other things, and we can amortize those costs out in a world where people are bidding for IP, right. and they're following the Netflix in that land. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think iHeart and Spotify are wildly different companies. I think Spotify is in a dramatically better place. They have, you know, tens of millions, if not more, credit card reoccurring revenue uh, as a brand. Uh, you know, the music infrastructure, they're making real dollars. So I, I would look at those two companies slightly differently. Um, but yes, I do believe that kids not only look at things like Instagram or Gimlet or Facebook and see themselves and those people, there are just a lot of 20-year-olds that have been able to raise $4 million, $1 million, $5 million in the last decade, something that anybody over 40 years old is completely foreign to uh, because there's way too much money and capital in the system. The, the global macro economy is wildly uh, exaggerated and extracted and over-leveraged. And, you know, I mean, Everything points to a roaring 20s-like environment that then led to the Great Depression. I don't know if the human race has the stomach to deal with the Great Depression. And so, and again, it's above my pay grade to really understand why we were able to put such an easy band-aid on the recession. Um, but the fundamentals are not in place. That I can promise. That I know. It is within my pay grade to understand that people no longer are building businesses. They're building financial arbitrage machines to raise capital. That 99% of the kids I talk to in their 20s that have a tech startup spend all their time thinking about how to raise their next round of capital, not to how to build a sustainable business. 
with lots of sizzle. Will there be, there are, no disrespect, millions of people who, who have no idea who you are. Yes. Uh, more than that, don't know why. Hundreds of billions. Right. There are billions of people who do not know who I am. That is correct. But, but let's speak specifically to like the U.S., for example. There are hundreds of millions of Americans who have no idea who I am. But and and then within but within the your ecosystem, the people that know, and within certain ecosystems, the people that know, they know. Oh, okay, there's here. Uh, I remember traveling in the 90s, you know, out of, out of the country, and the two things I would hear of being from Chicago were Michael Jordan, Smashing Pumpkins. So, I like the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> I like Jordan. Did you ever get to see Jordan play at the Garden? Sure did. You couldn't, <laughs> did you find a way to enjoy it at all? <laughs> no, I could not. Who's the greatest basketball player of all time then? Will Chamberlain. Yes, <laughs> he changed. They, they had to change every rule. Like Jordan's all time, easily top three. However you want to debate it, but like when you come along and have to have rules changed at scale, you are the greatest player of the sport. I believe that to be true. Back to the. We're to disagree, but how could you not? From Chicago, but uh, so there about popularity. Yes. There are people that have transcended that, celebrities or media people specifically. Oprah, mm -hmm. Howard Stern. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there may not ever be one of those ever again. The world, the media, will, will that, can that ever happen again? You know, with, with the exception of like an Ellen, where there were children, where they're already popular, famous, and now they're, they, will there ever be another? No, and I think you see it play out in television ratings, right? Like. Yeah. Like, every, remember, and we're at the perfect age for this, remember everyone was like, wait till you see how big the final episode of Seinfeld is going to be, and the numbers came in softer, because people didn't realize the internet had already happened. I remember thinking they're going to be disappointed, because I knew that a lot of my friends were in chat rooms on AOL while that was airing, and or watching, I don't remember if it was, it was Thursday night, but I think it might, there might have been Thursday night wrestling, because this was during the time of like real hardcore NWO, like WWF Wars, frankly, yeah. you know, MASH or Stern or Oprah, these are pre-internet dynamics. No, we are in a fragmented world um, where instead of 15 minutes of fame, everyone's famous to 15 people, and that gets fragmented. So no, I don't think you'll have, I mean, look, don't be people that emerge. People can argue with me that that's wrong because the Kardashians have full scale. Now they have mainstream media and social and things of that nature, but look, I, I, here's what I would say. Not as consistent as we saw. I, I believe the top 1% still can get there. I fully anticipate every single American on the planet. I really do. Now, it might take 17 years, but I think that's gonna happen. So I do think the top 1% can get there. I think it's more about that number seven through 400 in fame don't have the same level of fame. And you see it playing out, right? Like, whether it's Katy Perry or Taylor Swift or things like that. These are people that are really up there but are just like wildly not as up there as they were in 1984 in the way we talk because there's so much emergence of personalities. Uh, I was with, with two TikTok celebrities yesterday, you know, 18, 17 year old girls, and I said to them, you know, you walk into a mall right now with Madonna uh, or high school and it's not even close. You're going to take 800 selfies and Madonna's going to take 80, and that's like fascinating. 
in order for you to get to that 1% yeah. that you're talking about for you, yeah. what do you have to use mainstream media? Do you have to use TV and radio and stuff? No. What changes? Just time. Just the patience. Just the patience. What, what you know with two younger sons is I may not have every American in the land, but by the way I'm playing it, a stunning percentage of 14 to 20 knows exactly who I am. And so it just plays out. You may not get a doc. Well, we all are. Uh, but it's not that. It's, that. it's that when you get in that early at scale, that amortizes out over time. You know? So you're working on, and everything you do in this, what we're doing now, you're creating the audio archives of the future. Yes, I am. Um, why is that important from, from your viewpoint? Because I think the IP is worth a lot of money. I think there's a lot of value if Oprah recorded every maneuver she made in 1984 to 1994. I think a lot of us would consume that right now. I would. I. Me. I consume nothing. I would love to see an early Steve Jobs, Bill Gates launch. I would love to see Oprah negotiating her color purple movie deal. I like business. Business is entertainment to me. Like Shark Tank has proven is for many people. And I think uh, I think the IP is gonna be valuable. Okay, so along those lines. Plus, I think it's really rad that my great great grandkids are watching this right now. Yeah. I've got like four photos of my grandfathers. Yeah. Like, you know, I think it's gonna be super duper cool. Like, we are the first generation of documentation at scale. Of course, there's families that took a lot of photos, like a lot, but even that, this is true documentation, film. The only, like, every one of us great grandkids are gonna have so much more of this. The only people that had that were people that were descendants of wildly famous people, but even then, they only saw them in film and television in roles, not their natural self. I mean, it's, I, I'm like super pumped that you know, that I get to be the patriarch, you know, we get to be the patriarchs and the matriarchs of our families because we're the first member to create content at scale. What should I have asked you? What should people ask you? A lot of people want to go, hey, what you're doing, continue. What should people be asking you if they knew what you were going through, if they knew what you saw, if they knew what you experienced, what should they be asking you? And I think people should be asking whatever is valuable to them at that moment. And so for me in the context of this, it's, it's I think from a professional standpoint, the way you're thinking is how do you find value to communicate to a Fortune 500 or even a Fortune 5,000 or even a Fortune 500,000 or a large SMB in Chicago? How do you find a way to bring them value above and beyond their cynicism of traditional radio so that they actually deploy capital into your ecosystem so that you, you don't you know, turn every last black hair into a gray hair, right? I think that's what I think about. You know, why would Binnie's with 70 wine and liquor stores in Chicago run ads on your ecosystem in lieu of doing that on Instagram or Facebook or Spotify scale pre-roll that's coming out now. We need to hack that. And I actually think there's always an answer, but it's providing new value props. Maybe it's you doing 13 shows at 13 locations. 
You know, it's like it's hacking. So I think I always think no matter where you are in the life cycle of what's hot versus what's cold, there's always a way to flip it. It takes innovation and looking at it differently. Last question: Should there be mentioned this Shark Tank of people's you liking to be in on the meeting if you could see or hear Oprah? Why isn't there and should there be a WFAN for business, really for business, for entrepreneurs, like sports radio, but with business as a sport? Do you think there's a space for that? Do you think that that would? I think a lot of podcasts scratch that edge. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. So, yes, I think it's it, on terrestrial at scale, less than one old school. Sh- I think it would crush. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Good job. As we end today's podcast, I want to give a huge shout out to the people, you know, it's so funny, people that leave reviews and written reviews of this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms just mean the world to me. You've taken an extra 13 to 95 seconds to show love and also give context to people of why this is a worthwhile podcast. So I appreciate that so much and even more fun because uh, I think we all love a little cosign or a shout out or a little awareness. Uh, I'm going to have the team give a couple of shout outs uh, daily on uh, our favorite reviews. So Dean, take it away. Which were our favorites this week? Thank you, Gary. Today's reviews, total mindset shift, as well as energy and inspiration. Thank you, Gary V. Written in by Hampton Brian 8 and D Ham said, I am a young aspiring entrepreneur slash father and I have been watching and listening to Gary over the past two years. I literally began to move through my life completely different after consuming his content. I understand now that execution and getting out of your own way is key when it comes to being successful. Thanks, Gary. See you soon. And secondly, just what I needed to push me out of my comfort zone. Thank you, Gary V. Thank you both so much for writing in. And remember, keep leaving reviews because yours could be next.